This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part three of a five-part series on oil, gas, and energy law. The series is hosted by Clinton Butler. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Vanak podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode will focus on the different types of transactions that one can find oneself entering into with oil and gas companies and companies whose operations are adjacent to those oil and gas operations. The conversation will then shift to discussing the different types of disputes that mineral and royalty owners can find themselves in with those different types of companies. Today I'll be joined by my partner Stephen All. Like Elizabeth and myself, Stephen is a member of Langley and Benack's oil and gas practice group and has worked extensively in the Eagleford shale play, particularly in those counties in and around Dimmick County. Like me, Stephen started his legal career at the Bear County DA's office where he served as a white collar felony prosecutor for around seven years. So his experience in front of judges and juries is quite extensive beyond just his oil and gas work. So with that, please join me in welcoming to the podcast my friend and partner at Langley Manac and my fellow Bear County DA alum, Stephen All. Stephen, hello. Hi. Good morning, Clinton. Good morning. How are you? Doing well. All right. So today's episode is going to kind of focus on what types of transactions mineral owners find themselves entering into with oil and gas companies, pipeline companies, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, when those deals go wrong. So, you know, kind of love and war in the oil field, right? Right. So let the audience, you know, get to know you a little bit. How'd, how, where'd you go to law school? How'd you get into oil and gas? How are we sitting here today? Sure. Yeah, I went to uh, St. Mary's Law School here in San Antonio. Uh, graduated from there in 2007 and began, like you said in our intro, at the district attorney's office. Um, after I left the district attorney's office, I came to Langley and Benack and started working uh, out of our Carrizo Springs office. Um, lived down in Carrizo Springs, practiced down in Carrizo Springs, and obviously I started down there in 2012, October of 2012. So obviously it was at the height of the Eagle Ford shale boom down there. Uh, and most of our transactional and litigation practice revolves in some form or fashion around oil and gas. And for anyone questioning Stephen's dedication to the practice, he lived down in Carrizo Springs while being <laughs> married with young kids as well, I believe. So you, you had some some weeks where you were leaving Mal by herself there for a while. That's right, but it was fun. Yeah, I'm sure she loved it too. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, going into, you know, just the basics of transactions, 
what what would you say is the most basic type of transaction that would serve as a good jumping off point for you know the types of transactions that you know mineral owners can find themselves entering into with oil and gas companies right well i think obviously the the place that it all starts is the oil and gas lease okay um, so explain a lease to us because an oil and gas lease is actually kind of different than like just if I was leasing an office building or something like that, right? Right. Okay. So kind of walk us through what an oil and gas lease is and what it does. Sure. Well, an oil and gas lease can do a lot of different things. Um, you know, the typical oil and gas lease that uh, a landman or somebody with an oil company will bring you is, I guess, what I would consider the bare bones uh, of what would be necessary uh, for for an operator to get in and produce oil from your property. The producer's 88, if you will. Right, uh, and there are several variations of a producer's 88. As a lot of times we have clients come in and say, I know a producer's 88 isn't good, but this one has an addendum, <laughs> right? The and, addendum, right. what, okay, so <laughs> let, let's just walk through real basically what the producer's 88 is, and then you know what this blessed addendum that we often see attached to one is. Sure, so I think uh, everybody that, that's considering entering into an oil and gas lease can Google producer's 88, and it says, do not sign a producer's 88, right? That's like in, in red, bold print. Bare bones is being generous when you're describing, a, basically a producer's 88 is a napkin upon which you've written, you can come out and do whatever the hell you want out here, right? Right. Okay. You can lay whatever pipelines you want. You can do, you can put it wherever you want. You can do anything you'd like to do to my land. That's, that's so long as you pay me this X percentage of production, right? Right. Okay. Uh, and so I think uh, operators and uh, landmen have gotten, you know, smart. They understand nobody's just going to sign a producer's 88, so they've added, you know, the addendum which I think a lot of times I find them selling that as, you know, this is going to protect you or your, or your land, and, and this is going to be a lot better than what the other guy's bringing you, which is a normal producer's ADA. And would you say that the oil and gas lease and the blessed addendum that is often presented to an oil and gas owner or mineral owner uh, by the oil and gas company, is that going to be sufficient to protect both their monetary and, and you know, property rights? Uh, you know, assuming they own the service. No, not at all. Uh, in fact, I mean, obviously, like any contract that somebody brings you that they've drafted, it's obviously drafted for them, uh, for the operator, or for the landman. And, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that whenever an, an independent landman approaches them, he's likely getting a cut of whatever production, the difference in production is between the two royalties. So what I mean by that is if he's bringing you a lease with a 22.5% royalty, he's going to go try to sell it for 25% and he's actually making the, the delta between that 25 and 22 and a half percent. He's putting it in his pocket and you're leaving it on the table. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that. So what, what sort of things are, are, do mineral owners need to be looking out for when they're presented an oil and gas lease by the landman? And sure. maybe we should do this. Maybe we should define what a landman is. Sure, yeah. A landman is just somebody that works for an oil company, or sometimes oil companies hire groups of landmen um, whenever they go into a shale play at first, or if they're trying to acquire an acreage block. It's just a person, a man or a woman. I call them, they're traditionally called landmen, but I guess they could be land persons. Land persons, and, I think, would be the best way to phrase it now. Right. And they, they come in, and their job is, is to, to sign up as many people as possible on in my opinion, as bare a form as possible that gives the operator 
whoever that's going to end up being the most latitude to do whatever they want to do. Okay, and so what type of you know what type of issues are mineral owners need to be looking out for when that landman brings them the oil and gas lease? You know, they, here you go, you know, Jane Doe, this is what I'd like you to sign. You know, what is typically lacking in that lease form? Sure. Well, uh, number one, it could just generally be uh, the type of, you know, the amount of royalty that's going to be paid. But more importantly, what can an operator take deductions from your royalty uh, when they're producing it? Uh, and that kind of gets into maybe a later topic. Though. Oh, okay. And what else? Like, you know, do you send in the leases that is that are presented by landmen? Do you see a lot of surface protections? In right. Now, there's not going to be probably any surface protections. Um, in the oil and gas leases that we uh, draft for our clients, we've got somewhere between a 20 to 30 page surface use agreement that sets out you know, where things can be located uh, and, and how they're to be located and whether they can lay a pipeline. And you know, one surface issue is water. I mean, mm -hmm. do they have the, the right to use water or do we have the right to sell it to them? Yeah, and you know what I tell a lot of clients, particularly ones who come to me after the lease has been signed and they're they're complaining about something that an oil and gas company has done, is you know I oftentimes have to tell them, look, your relationship with this oil and gas company is dictated by the terms of the lease. You know how what rights they have, what privileges they have, what duties, what obligations they have. Uh, the common law, you know, just standard baseline Texas law will fill in some of those gaps, but really the rights are contracted between the parties and they're dictated by the lease, right? Right. And, and I think, you know, in, in terms of surface protections, we see a lot of change in value uh, relative to whenever people are buying and selling ranches. We do a lot of ranch transaction real estate work and people that are buying ranches and paying a lot of money for them to make improvements want to know what the surface protections are. And if you have two roughly equivalent tracts of land, it's going to affect the value you could get for your land if you had to sell it someday as well. Okay, so we'll, we'll get into some disputes that we both have encountered with, uh, with oil and gas leases in a little while on the show. But let's, let's put it down so we've signed our oil and gas lease, right? All right, so now there's an oil and gas lease, the you know, Marathon or Conoco or you know, EOG or somebody has the right to come onto my property and drill for oil and gas, right? That's basically what the oil and gas lease gives them the right to do. Um, what happens next? What's the next type of transaction or the next you know, sort, of, uh, sort of step you would see in the development of minerals? Right, generally speaking, uh, operators are gonna, are more and more gonna come to the landowner and try to get an agreement some sort of agreement in writing about how they're going to conduct their surface operations. So mm -hmm. we're seeing surface use agreements, subsurface easement or subsurface use agreements um, with operators as well. And then, you know, uh, agreements on pipelines, how they're going to get, you know, once they establish production, how they're going to get the production to a larger pipeline. Uh, and, and also, um, you know, how they're going to get water and how they're going to actually you know, the kind of, I guess, the, the how they're going to develop the minerals that they've leased. So let's break it down a little bit. Sure. Um, with regards to pipelines, there are two different types of pipelines that I, gotta, I kind of consider. Uh, one's a flow line, the other one's a gathering line. Right. And flow lines are, are pipelines that are allowed pursuant to the lease. 
gathering lines or, or third-party contracts, right? Right. And so could you, could you give the audience, you know, what is really the difference between pipelines that are classified as flow lines as opposed to pipelines that are classified as gathering lines? Yeah, the gathering lines are going to be generally the, the line that everybody thinks of as going to an actual you know, facility where they're going to refine this, the oil and sell its parts. The flow lines are going to be those smaller lines that are coming from the production facilities on someone's track of land and running to the gathering lines. Now, in flow lines are generally allowed pursuant to the terms of the lease, right? Because they're, they're taking production from Black Acre you know, off of Black Acre, right? Right. And so, you know, typically in your oil and gas lease, in the granting clause of the lease, it'll give them the right to lay pipelines to transport oil from that land or land pool therewith, correct? That's right. But gathering lines are different. That That's a different transaction, right? Correct. Can you explain, you know, how that transaction goes, goes about? Sure, yeah. So gathering lines uh, could take two different methods. One would just be the traditional, hey, we're laying a pipeline, we're a, a private entity without condemnation authority, right? We're just going to get this, we're taking this, the flow lines, dumping it into a bigger spot and then getting it to ultimately the entities that have condemnation authorities, which are common carriers. Uh, and those have, those would be very large gathering lines that have the right uh, of eminent domain and the right to take your land uh, for, for construction of those pipelines. Yeah, the way I kind of explain to clients is, okay, a flow line is taking Marathon's production from your well off of your property. A gathering line is taking all of Marathon's production from all of these wells, some of which you don't participate in, to a central gathering facility. A condemnation line is taking Marathon's production, EOG's production, uh, Conoco's production, and as a common carrier like a utility, you know, like an electric line, you know, they've got the same sort of condemnation power, are transporting it to market, right? right? And so those are kind of the three different types of, of pipelines. You know, what sort of issues does a mineral or, or a landowner, particularly in this case, uh, need to be looking out for with regards to pipeline agreements? You know, let's say we're doing a gathering line agreement. Marathon wants to lay a gathering line to transport all of Marathon's production across my property. First of all, can I say no to that? You can. Uh, you can say no, uh, which, you know, depending upon where your land's located relative to others will give you some, some leverage. Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting is uh, we have seen, we've, we've seen an increase in operators assigning lease or attempting to assign lease rights to lay gathering lines to third parties that are build, building these gathering lines and claiming them as lease lines. That's a, an interesting new tactic that's that we've seen. I don't know if you've seen it in Carnes as much. Uh, we were just referred a case this week in which um, an oil and gas company who will remain nameless for now uh, was doing almost exactly that wherein they were they were bringing in off-lease production and basically doing the reverse. They were taking it from gathering lines into the flow lines, which then the CGP was located on our property. So they were basically using the flow lines as part of their gathering line system sure. to transport in third-party production. So um, somebody at a tall office building in Houston is going to be hearing from us soon <laughs> about that. And so, yeah, no, we are starting to see that. And, you know, that, 
it's practicing oil and gas law is there's a there's a line in Alice in Wonderland where the Red Queen, evil Red Queen, is talking to Alice, and you know, she says, "Alice, the point of the game is to run as fast as you can to stay where you're at." And you know, that feels like what we do. It feels like you know we're just in a constant you know hamster wheel race just to be able to try to keep on top of what these companies do because you know they are some of the biggest, most powerful companies to ever walk the face of the earth, and you know. We're representing, you know, Mom and Joe. You know, I mean, right. it's right. it's 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 an unfair fight, but you know, uh, given what we do, it's 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 imperative on our part to try to keep up with these companies and see what their latest trends are, in order to be able to best advise our clients. That's right. Yeah, and so it it can be a uh, sometimes frustrating, but it, you you feel like you're almost like a detective sometimes, where you're just doing these due diligence investigations constantly. On, uh, on these multi-billion dollar companies. So we, we've entered into a lease, uh, pipeline infrastructure has been agreed to and is beginning to be developed. At this point, we're starting the drilling process then. You know, if they're laying flow lines, it's to take production to market, right? right. So, you know, when we've got development now, you know, oil and gas operations are about to start up. What sort of transactions, what sort of, uh, you know, transactional issues are we going to be looking at here for development? You know, depending on what your lease says and how much leverage that gets us, I mean, we're going to be looking at a surface use agreement, uh, a pad side agreement potentially. Um, if these are going to be wells that they are um, drilling and producing from adjacent lands, you could also have a subsurface use agreement. On the surface use agreement, just generally speaking for development, you know, things we're going to look at doing or where's the pad site going to be located, how big is the pad site going to be, um, are, where are they going to put roads. Um, and what we're trying to do, obviously, is minimize the surface impact uh, for our clients, right? Seeing how we can organize pipelines and facilities to allow our clients land, however big it is. Um, to, to remain as close to what it was. Minimize the footprint. Right, right? And, and the traffic. I mean, yeah. obviously, you know, depending upon where they're at in the process of infrastructure around you, you could have, you know, tr tanker trucks hauling water, tanker trucks hauling oil, you know, any number of trucks, any any time of the day on your place. I mean, I, I would invite anyone who would question how big of a footprint an oil and gas company can make on your property Go go to Carnes County or to Dimmit and check out a frack operation. It's a small city that moves into a piece of property right. on you know a ten acre pad site to make these frack jobs happen. I mean, and the the amount of traffic that can come through a person's property uh, when one of these operations gets into high steam is really astounding. It is. We have a client with a twenty acre frack pond, and I don't think that's abnormally large. Um, and, and so you've got a huge, a huge pond alone with pipes running everywhere. There's a, there's a lot of things to be considered. Sure. One of the agreements we're seeing a lot in Carnes County that's being tendered to our clients are what's called production sharing agreements. You seeing a lot of those? Yeah, we, we are seeing a lot of those as well. And, you know, kind of give the audience just a real brief explanation of what we mean by a production sharing agreement. What's the purpose of this agreement? Yeah, we've seen them in two forms, a production sharing agreement or a production allocation agreement. They're mm -hmm. roughly the same thing. And, and what this is is operators that have drilled 
one, uh, one unit are going in and essentially drilling a well bore between two units. Uh, what we're seeing, and I don't know about in Carnes, the technology is pretty much the same everywhere, you know, where they were drilling 7,000 foot laterals, they're drilling 11 or 12,000 foot laterals. And what that does is take the well bore beyond the unit they originally drilled into another unit. Um, and, and so let's maybe back up a little bit more, you know, let's define what a unit is for sure. our clients. So a unit is a, a collection, a hodgepodge of different oil leased properties gathered together and pooled into a unit that's designated with the railroad commission. You know, it could be the, the Butler A unit and that unit will hold certain tracts of land and each tract is paid based upon the number of acres that they contribute to the unit divided by the total number of acres in the unit. So if you and I are in a unit, it's 500 acre unit, I contribute 250 mineral acres, you contribute 250 mineral acres, you'll get half of the production on that unit and I'll get the other half, right? Right. And so what, we've, what has happened is when, uh, when these units were first formed back in 13, 14, 12, whenever, uh, they were made for 4,000 to 6,000 foot long lines, right? Right. Well, now they can drill 11,000 foot lines, and these units are too small to hold those types of lines, right? Right. And so they've got to go from unit and then cross over into unit, right? Right. And that's what these production sharing wells or, or production sharing agreements are trying to permit for the oil and gas operator, right? Right. And so what is, you know, and in, in my mind, the key purpose of a production sharing agreement is to set forth an allocation formula, right? Right. Can you tell us a little bit about what that allocation formula typically looks like in a production sharing agreement? Yeah, typically on a, on a regular production sharing agreement, the allocation formula is gonna look something like, you know, the amount of lateral feet, if you own in the Butler A and I own in the Butler B, mm -hmm. uh, however many feet of the new lateral or in the Butler A unit, you're going to get, and mm -hmm. the amount of lateral feet in the Butler B unit, I would receive production from. That's, right. that's the typical formula where it gets a bit more complicated, and what operators have started to do is they want to drill within or closer to the unit lines that wouldn't ordinarily, they're, they're wells that the Railroad Commission would not ordinarily permit. So let's break down the first hive, which sure. is kind of the unit to unit line, right? right. All right, so I'm, I own 100% of the minerals in the Butler unit, you own 100% of the minerals in the all unit, right? And, you know, they cannot drill an 11,000 foot well in the all unit, they can't drill an 11,000 foot well in the buffer unit. Let's call it 10,000 because 10 is easier for my math. Uh, became a lawyer because I didn't want to take math classes. Right. So uh, let's say that 5,000 feet of the horizontal line is under the Butler unit, 5,000 feet of the horizontal line is under the all unit. That means that the Butler unit would get half of the production because half of that line is under my, my land and the all unit, we get the other half of the production, right? Because it's kind of like, you know, the way I explain it to clients is easy as I can. Think of it as a super unit. Right. You know, it's exactly. just, we're, we're just making a bigger unit, you know, so we can drill bigger wells. And, you know, I am typically in favor of these because I think that uh, what's been proven out is that these longer lines produce exponentially more than two lines 
of the same length. Right. So a 10,000 foot line is going to produce more than two 5,000 foot lines. You agree with that? Right. And I think from an operator's perspective, they're more attractive than drilling. You know, you may never get two 5,000 foot lines drilled anymore, but because of the cost of the pads and everything else associated with the development. So. Yeah, it's a lot cheaper for them to drill one 10,000 foot line than it is for them to drill 2,000 foot lines, right? Right. And so it promotes development as well. Right. right. That's our unit to unit. Now you mentioned another one, another type of PSA well that's becoming very common, and that's the unit line well. Right. Right. So explain to us why that why those lines absent a PSA well, why those wells absent a PSA agreement uh, could not be drilled. Right, so the Railroad Commission, depending on where you're at and what formation, sets forth how far you have to be off of a unit line or how far a well bore has to be off of a unit line. And so commonly what's happened is, let's say that you have to be 300 feet off of the unit line on either side, is you've got a well bore that can only drain you know, three or five hundred feet, and then on the other side of the unit line, you've got a well bore that can only drill three or five hundred feet, and then you've got this no man's land in the middle, right, that you can't drill because the Railroad Commission won't grant you a permit because you're not going to be three hundred feet off of the unit line. The highway of non-production. That's right. Yeah, there you go. That's right. And, uh, so, and so the point of these unit line wells is to be able to access those minerals that would otherwise be foreclosed on, right? Right. Nobody could develop them uh, <laughs> absent the agreement. And so, you know, the purpose of the agreement is instead of having, you know, two unit owners, the butler and the all, now you're potentially going to have four different units that are all going to have to agree on how to allocate the production. Again, just like we were talking about before, it's more attractive to the operators to enter into those agreements because otherwise that that acreage is just going to go undeveloped. Right. I mean, I, the way I talk to clients is I say, look, either we're going to you know negotiate and get the terms we want, but ultimately sign this agreement, or else those minerals are going to lay fallow forever because absent uh, the consent of the owners on either side of the buffer zone lease, you can't enter into that agreement because it promotes drainage, right? And so... You know, those unit line wells are particularly attractive because that's the only way you're going to get those minerals produced, right? That's right. Okay. So those are some, some of the major agreements, you know, the, the love portion of our, of our discussion here. Uh, let's talk about when the fights happen. Yeah. So, you know, what, um, with regards to the lease, you know, going back to the first document that exists in our continuum here. What do, what do you find are some of the typical fights that you've entered into against oil and gas companies on behalf of your mineral owners? Yeah, one of the first fights that uh, I got into when I started working in the Carrizo office was one about whether or not the wells were producing and paying quantities. Um, so what does that mean? Producing right. and paying quantities, that's a term of art, right? Sure. You know, that's got a defined, defined term. What does that mean? Right, so producing and paying quantities uh, means, well, it, it could mean a lot of different things depending on your lease, but generally speaking, in, in the context of the, uh, the litigation that we were in, was whether or not particular wells on acreage were producing and paying quantities. The typical oil and gas lease has a clause in it that the oil and gas lease is typical for, or is, excuse me, effective for a term of years to the typical oil and gas lease is three years and so long thereafter as there is production and paying quantities. That's the typical way that oil and gas leases are written. So there comes a time 
whenever wells stop producing or produce a minuscule amount, and then the discussion is, or the question in the litigation is, does it meet that definition of three years and as long as it's producing and paying quantities? And that, that can be somewhat of a moving target as to what constitutes paying quantities or not. You know, what, what's the period of time that a court's going to look at to determine, you know, is this well profitable or not? Right, and from a landowner's perspective, uh, it can be an expensive fight. Um, the, the appellate courts have held that production and paying quantities, a judge can't tell a jury, jurors, you are to consider this finite period of time. It's up to the 12 people in the box, uh, which is a problem for two things. Number one, you don't know your 12 you're getting, right? And, and then the second problem is that means you're, you're in a jury trial. It's a fact issue for a jury. Um, and the, the way, at least that I read the case law, is that a judge really can't make a determination of whether an oil well is producing and paying quantities. You're getting a jury trial. Yeah, the court makes it kind of a well-by-well, lease-by-lease analysis. And so, you know, what, what is one man's paying quantities is another man's, you know, lost revenue. And so, you know, it, it really just is going to depend, like you said, on the 12 people from Kmart that, you know, sit right. on your jury pool, right? Right. And so that also makes it difficult for us lawyers to advise our clients because, you know, they come in. They've got, you know, their royalty statements, you know, showing here's how much this well is paying out. And they're asking you, hey, you know, has this lease terminated for not paying in quantities? And the answer is, I don't know. You know? <laughs> I mean, and, you know, you hate giving that advice to clients. You know, as lawyers, we love certainty. We love bright, bright line rules. And we love, you know, this is the standard and these are the elements. And, you know, with things like in production and paying quantities, you're kind of shrugging your shoulders a little bit. And so, you know, how do you advise your client in a situation like that? Yeah, we try to gather as much evidence as we can. You know, this particular case, we went and got a, obtained a TRO and then had an injunction hearing uh, in order to get the operator into court. And the excuse in this particular case, although they had no electricity to the oil and gas wells and hadn't had for over a year, their excuse was that it was flowing and that they had no expenses. And the equation on whether it's producing and paying quantities is do you, after you pay royalties and after you pay expenses, do you make any money? <laughs> so they said, you know, we're paying our royalties, we don't have any expenses, and we're making, you know, <laughs> two to four barrels a month, if, so we're uh, making money. If costs are zero, then, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's hard not to make money. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, and, and this is something that, you know, we will probably see over and over again in our talk today. And then uh, as I think it also relates to my talk with uh, dad on Friday or later this week about the executive rights, um, courts will, particularly the higher you go in the court system, deference is given to the oil and gas companies. I think that, you know, we're an energy producing state. Uh, it's a huge business here in Texas. And it's recognized as such in, in the eyes of the law here in Texas. And I think you're just, you're not, you're not being honest with your client if you don't recognize the field you're playing on. Um, and so, you know, I think that courts hate a forfeiture of the lease. They try to avoid that uh, for public policy reasons and, and for other reasons. But, you know, if they can, you know, devise a lease to not terminate, I think they try to go in that direction. Do you think that's a fair assessment? 
Absolutely. Um, I think if you need a, you know, a oil and gas primer on, on what Texas thinks about oil and gas production, we had a case that went to the Supreme Court that unfortunately we lost. It was Lightning versus Anadarko, and we had claimed a trespass through our client Lightning's mineral estate. And the way that the, I mean, there's more nuance to the decision, but ultimately it was, you know, the state of Texas wants production of oil and gas. And to the extent there's a trespass, there's there's not much of one, so we're going to let it go forward. So yeah, I think what you're saying is correct. It's a from a landowner's perspective, anytime you're taking on an oil company, it's certainly you're fighting an uphill battle the whole way. It's a David and Goliath story. I mean, in, in you know the truest sense of the word, you know nowadays. That's right. Yeah, and so it, it, getting into other types of fights, you know, sure. we kind of talked about the oil and gas lease defining the rights of the parties. And you know, you talked about a, a really extensive surface use agreement that you try to get involved in all your oil and gas leases. You know, let's first talk about, you know, let's say, okay, I've got that oil and gas lease and it's got good terms. Mm-hmm. You know, what what do I do as a surface owner if a company is violating those terms? And then I want to get into what what if I don't have any surface protection terms in my lease? What what am I left with then? Is it just Katie bar the door and everything comes in, or, or is, there, is there something in common law, that just basic law that I can rely on? Right. So let, let's go first with, I've got a contract, it's a good contract, Stephen all drafted this up, and this company's not living up to the terms of this contract. What do you do? Sure, uh, first thing we do is we send a demand letter uh, to the operator uh, and, and try to get someone engaged that we can talk to short of filing a lawsuit, right? Mm-hmm. I think. You and I talk to a lot of in-house lawyers, or sometimes it's a struggle to get to a lawyer where we're just saying, please, please, I, you know, you're a very nice person, get me to somebody that can make a decision or can read this lease and decide that, you know, for your company that you're violating it. That's um, absolutely and, right. And sometimes that takes, unfortunately for our clients, a lot of frustrating time and, and money. Um, but, you know, if you have a, a surface use agreement and you don't believe an operator's living up to it, um, I can tell you, that whenever a letter comes on our letterhead, uh, it generally gets you to the decision makers much more quickly than, unfortunately, a landowner taking the same surface use agreement to said oil company and saying, like, hey, you guys aren't, aren't doing this right. It's one of those things where, you know, it's not fair, but it's true. Right. You know, right. It just, you know, unfortunately for, for mineral owners, when, you know, a Langley Manac or Jackson Walker or other type of law firm, you know, their name's the letterhead of a letter, it's going to typically immediately go to you know somebody in their counsel's office because in the body of that letter is usually some wording saying you have 30 days to xyz or else here we go you know uh, we we get into litigation and so yeah and so we send that demand letter you get a response that you don't like or you don't get any response at all within that 30 days what's next step Next step, you don't get any response or you don't like the response is to file a petition and ask a court to determine what the lease says and whether or not they're living up to it. And that would typically come under like a breach of contract cause of action, right? Right. Lease is a contract between me and the operator. It's got these terms that are set out in the body of the lease. We think they're violating the term. That violation has caused me harm, right? Right. And with uh, with a breach of contract suit, you know, is there any ability for the mineral owner to seek a reimbursement of their attorney's fees? Right, yeah, there is. You can certainly ask for it. It's one of those, the court may award them instead of shall award them. Right. So 
uh, you know, our clients are always saying like, well, if we win this, we're getting our fees back, right? And again, that answer is like, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you'd certainly rather have that permissive language for attorney's fees than not. Right. And so, you know, right. one thing we put in our lease, um, and I'm sure you guys do this as well, is we put a clause in the lease that says, if the mineral owner brings suit for a breach of contract and prevails, they shall be. So we override that statute right. with language in the lease, which parties can do. Parties can contract between themselves for greater or lesser duties than what is allowed by law. Right. Right. And, you know, just going back to that, uh, that continuous statement I'm making, that that contract defines the relationship, right? I mean, right. you're... You know, an oil and gas lease, you know, if it produces, can oftentimes last longer than marriages, you know. And so, right. you know, this is going to be a long, potentially long-term relationship that you're entering into with. And so you want, you know, our relationship to be as defined as possible going into that. That's right. So that, okay, so we've sued and, I'm sorry. No, no, we're good. So we've sued. Yeah. We're there. And then you asked about, I think you'd asked about, uh, just statute or just common law protections of the sure. surface, right? Yeah, so that's our, our next one. Okay, so you know, on that, we've brought our breach of contract suit. So that's that's landowner A who comes into your law office. Right. Landowner B signed that producer's ADA. You know, he needed that bonus money quick, and you know, he had some debts to pay. Said, hey, I signed it. They're out there just, you know, tearing the heck out of my land. What can I do? And your answer to them is? The accommodation doctrine. Ooh, man, that's a tough one. <laughs> All right, so uh, I commonly refer to it as the no accommodation doctrine. That's right. And so you can, uh, you can explain as to why that is. Yeah, well, the accommodation doctrine just says that they can't interfere with your existing surface uses, whatever those may be. So uh, I would suggest to a client that they quickly go with some sort of land farming operation. <laughs> and and it, it's even more complex than that because it's, 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 they can't interfere with existing surface use operations um, so long as it doesn't impact their bottom line. So, you know, it's, it's like that the oil and gas company can prove that, yeah, you know, we, we we're destroying their cattle operation, but it would cost us 20 more bucks to move this well over here where it wouldn't destroy, they win. Right. And so, you know, that, uh, that is why you do not want to find yourself in a position where you're just having to argue, you know, reasonable use pursuant to the accommodation doctrine, right? Right. <coughs> so, you know, I'm a big believer, you know, in the put 90% of your effort in the front end so you don't have to worry about it so much at the back end. And that's just going to that lease. You know, the, those lease negotiations are so important because, again, you're defining the rights and the, the privileges and obligations of the parties. And if you don't do it correctly and you're finding yourself saying, man, I got to rely on the accommodation doctrine, you know, you, you've really put five bullets in the chamber and you're playing Russian roulette. You know, I right. mean, it's, it's, you, it's an uphill battle. Um, another issue that I wanted to talk to you about was, you know, the continuous development clause in right. your oil and gas lease and, and how that you know, three years and for so long thereafter as X right. can really, you know, be some huge, you know, determinative language as to, you know, what keeps your lease alive and what doesn't. So go back to that primary term. Tell us, you know, what you put in your leases as the types of conditions that would continue a lease and what other conditions you've seen in other leases 
that can really hurt a landowner, a mineral owner. Right. So in our lease, uh, as probably your lease too, we define what production and paying quantities is, right? So, you know, it's going to be three years and so long thereafter as there is production and paying quantities as mm -hmm. here and after defined. And then we say specifically, and then depending upon the lease that we, you know, that we can negotiate with the operator, it's going to define it by terms of barrels or a term of barrels of oil equivalent, something like that that times it to production. But what you commonly see on other oil and gas lease forms, you know, producers 88 form is so long thereafter is a is there is a well capable of producing and paying quantities and and there's actually case law on that that says well what is capable of production and paying quantities yeah made, i mean right? could they go in and refrack it and it you know kicks back up you know all that right as long as it's capable whatever their expert the operator's expert can say and you can certainly assume he's going to say that it's capable of producing and paying producing and as long as the, that production is in paying quantities that lease is valid forever now that's bad language but the worst language is when it's for three years and so long thereafter is operations yeah right. op the operations clause you know and there was a case that came out i believe uh roland oil Right. Yeah. Uh, recently, you know, give us a little bit of that. Yeah. So even the the Court of Appeals out of Austin, not the Supreme Court, but the Court of Appeals in Austin, the Intermediate Court of Appeals, struggled in Roland Oil with the case of what oil and gas operations were. Uh, this was actually a Roland Oil, and this this was probably I don't know about five years ago or so. We were involved with the landowner at the trial court level. But this was a railroad commission case, which is why it ended up in Austin, and the Austin Court of Appeals found that weed eating around the well site was operations uh, to perpetuate this particular form of lease. So, so just so the audience understands, well is not producing. Right. There is no production. You are not making money off this. But the lease stays alive beyond the primary term because some 18-year-old kid with a weed whacker got out there and cut some brush. Right, and and so the railroad commission lost on that language, and and it drew a slew of other amicus briefs going. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have to, in the opinion from the Austin Court of Appeals, says you know well, we weren't informed that this was a term of art, but apparently this means certain things, and ultimately, uh, due to all of the amicus briefs from you know mineral owners, etc., that that got turned around. But I guess the point is that was a case that went through the Railroad Commission, District Court in Travis County, and an appellate court and, and, a, and an amended uh, appellate court opinion before they finally decided that the 18-year-old with the weed whacker did not perpetuate the oil and gas lease. So. I mean, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars do you have to spend to get to that point, right? Right. Exactly. And so, and that's, so, so that operations provision and there's a constant argument of well, we started building the road, so we didn't we didn't drill the well, but we had a bulldozer that was building a road that was going to go to a pad site that we were then going to drill the well. You can see how long the yeah. lease would go on. Uh, you can you know the tail just you know extends for you know it's hey we moved dirt from that point of the pad site to over to that point of the pad. What are you talking about? There's no operations. Yeah, tons of operations, and you know. You, sophisticated companies will, you know, calendar, you know, their 90 to 60 day operations clause and they'll send somebody out there every 89th day to, you know, go move the dirt. Right. And so they can, they can survive it. And so what I, th what I think we've, you know, and we're running out of time, so we're going to need to close it up. But what I think 
you know, we've really hit upon here, and what I think the theme of this is, is that, you know, the terms of your contracts, the terms of your leases, the terms of your pipeline agreements, the terms of your water use agreements, uh, just play such an important part in the rights that you as the mineral owner have or the surface owner have to protect your interest. And, you know, absent, you know, express terms in those documents protecting your interest, um, you know, you can find yourself really at the whim of some of these powerful companies who, you know, Rightfully so, we're concerned about making money for their shareholders, not so much about making sure that, you know, you don't get dust on your, your petulias outside your house. Right. And so, you know, th that is why I always counsel people, you know, take the time uh, to make sure that you're getting the lease that works for you. And in some instances, um, no lease is better than a bad lease because it's, you know, the same thing as no marriage is better than a bad marriage. Because uh, these things, like I said, have the opportunity to last for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Well, Stephen, thank you very much for joining us today, and thank you for the audience and joining us. In our next episode, we'll be discussing bankruptcy in the oil field. Uh, and we'll be joined again by my partner, Stephen All, but also somebody from our bankruptcy department. Thank God, because we're going to need somebody who knows bankruptcy law. Uh, to discuss bankruptcy in the oil field and all that implies. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Langley and Banak podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Banak podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybanack.com, or call us at 210-736-7600.